Both of them stock is going to be on the hobby. Uh, and in part, it's going to be based on the uh, trip that we made, my wife and I, uh, to Charleston a couple years ago. We had a great time. We had a beautiful museum. And I'm going to kind of explain some of the myths and mysteries of the hobby. First, hopefully this is going to work. <laughs> talking about high tech. How many of you have seen the movie? Uh, is the smallest. Successful captains of the Titanic. <laughs> we 
recent Bears Super Bowl MVPs. <laughs> I was still going governors. Well, the post war reunion of the Confederate Submarine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> D, there actually were a whole bunch of survivors. There were. The guys who've been on the Hunley earlier. So, it wasn't a completely suicide thing. Uh, it just appears that way. Well, history submarines, uh, they go back a long way. This is an old depiction of Alexander the Great in 331 BC, uh, being lowered in the glass submersible. Uh, they make Alexander the Great who looks a little muscle there, but I mean, uh, the idea is that at the siege of Tyre, they were building an underwater dike to reach the, the town, and he actually, they actually had diving bells, essentially, uh, to um, reach these things. The siege of Syracuse named these divers. But these are more legendary things. The first early stubs are actually fairly well known, not very successful. On the left here, this is the David Bushnell submarine. Tried it off in the Revolutionary War. Now, basically, the problem with submarines those days was two propulsion and cable explosion. The difficulty was if you're underwater, you don't have air, a ready source of air. And of course, air, oxygen is what fuels engines, including steam engines. Yada, yada. So originally they went with hand cranking, and that was Bushman's idea. He was a one man submarine attacking the British Navy in New York Harbor in 1776. He actually went underneath a British warship. And he had a screw here that he was going to screw, go through the wood here and attach. A screw there, put a bomb on it, and then get away hopefully before it exploded. The failed because the ship turned out to be sheathed with copper on <laughs> So you didn't get a screw to get through the copper. On the right is Robert Fulton. Robert Fulton is better known for inventing the uh, steam first type of steamship. But here is his uh, Nautilus, as he called it. And he started the term torpedo. He had based as far explosive as his as his method of destroying ships. And a torpedo fish, as you might know, is a fish that stuns its prey by shooting out an electric shock. And so he called his explosive device there a torpedo. On the surface, it was a sailing ship. He tried to sell it to the French government. And Napoleon said, Yeah, I'm sort of busy conquering Europe, you know, so I Worry about submarines or anything like that. Um, the explosive problem was solved later by a guy, an Englishman named Robert Whitehead. He was hired by the Austro Hungarian Navy, yes, there was an Austro Hungarian Navy, and he invented the first self propelled, self guided torpedo, the kind that we know today. He used the gyroscopic stabilizer, something to keep it going more or less on course. Um, how many of you watch The Sound of Music? Remember the Von Trapp family? 
Baron Von Trapp was Whitehead's grandson. And that's where he got all the money for all the shows. The first practical ship that was sunk by a self-propelled torpedo is 1877 in the Chilean Civil War. Uh, not good, you know, not exactly front page news in the United States, but it showed that it could be done. In 1897, an American inventor named John Holland solved the problem of propulsion. Basically, he said, well, let's have two engines. On the surface, we have a regular steam or gasoline engine. Below water, we're going to put batteries. We have a battery power. We have batteries powering engines. Batteries don't use oxygen. So with this dual propulsion system, sort of like a hybrid car, by the way, that was the first practical propulsion system for a submarine. Because a submarine could be undetected, but if it can't go very fast, it can't catch any ship. The second. There were early Civil War attempts. This is a Union submarine, the USS Alligator. Go on with that. Um, the Union Navy was trying to do submarines too. Uh, this is basically a hand cranked submarine, you know, power again. And uh, they had a primitive air scrub system. And by that I mean, you know, when you breathe, you breathe out hydrogen and stuff like that, it poisons the atmosphere eventually. They had uh, some calcium, car calcium, calcium carbonate or something to sort of grab the, the nitrogen out of the air so they could stay under water longer. Um, the alligator was a failure. First of all, because it wasn't fast enough. And second of all, because there weren't a lot of Confederate ships around to sink. <laughs> there weren't enough good targets. So uh, they basically gave up on the mission. But the Confederates were a little more desperate and a little more soft. And here we have the two uh, people who basically grew guilty. The first on the left is the machinist, James McClintock. McClintock was uh, with the New Orleans, he owned the uh, boiler and repair, you know, steam engine repair shop and everything. And he did the practical stuff. Horace Hundley was a local lawyer who had a lot of money. And so Hundley provided the financing for this for the submarine, and McClintock provided the engineering. The Clintons is an interesting story. He survived the war. After the war, he tried to sell the U.S. Army on his own version of the torpedo. Uh, he had a demonstration in Boston Harbor in 1870 to blow up a ship, you know, barge right across the there. He sent his torpedo out. The torpedo circled around and blew himself up. <laughs> Not a safe way to do things. But Horace Hummel is the guy for whom he's the eventual submarine. There was, in fact, several submarines before. Um, this is a model of the Pioneer. Uh, this me, by the way. Uh, uh, this is all in technology. You don't know exactly what's happening. And so they built a, built a submarine and it was weighted the wrong way, so it would go down and not always come back up. 
It was constructed in New Orleans. The idea was to have it as a privateer. Now, a privateer is something um, was kind of important in those days. Basically, if you don't have a navy, you get merchant ships and put a gun on them and say, take any Union vessel you want, and you can sell it and keep that proceeds for yourself. Sort of a private work at that. Well, McClintock and Pungu thought that this submarine would be just great for being a privateer. They could uh, sneak up on a Union warship and sink it, and you know, the veterans be happy to pay $100,000 to the Union warship and sink it. But of course, they can't have the same difficulties. One of the things that when a Union Navy takes too long, it's not really to do. The submarine is still not ready, and they have to sink it. It was fished out, by the way, and uh, a replica, an early replica, is now on display in uh, Jackson Square in, in, in downtown New Orleans. Let me have to see. I'm giving up it. No more football games, right? Usually that's not a problem, they're actually winners. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the famous drawings of the McClintock uh, Third Summer. This was built in Mobile. After the Union Navy takes over New Orleans, McClintock and Huntley transfer their operations to Mobile, Alabama. And they build a summary there called the Pioneer. Uh, it was an improvement. They actually had the idea of having battery power. To, to, to propel it, and essentially what John Holland did 40 years later. But the batteries at the time were so weak, they couldn't propel the ship fast enough. So they basically fell back on hand cranked. Mm -hmm. um, Mobile Bay has a lot of currents, a lot of tides, and literally they couldn't even go against the tide. No day, let alone go and hunt down and move the ships. Well, uh, General Beauregard in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, he was an engineer by training. He was sort of an innovator, always looking for new ideas. And he heard about this summer. He said, why don't you ship it to Charleston? And we'll give it a try here. So they pushed this, they loaded it onto a special train car and did it by train to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, which is where it's going to get its un. Believable thing. In February of 1864, it's going to be the first submarine ever sent a hostile warship. Though, as we'll see, it wasn't acting as a submarine. It was on the surface. But the trouble was, there was uh, a couple of disasters in between. Uh, they quickly began, began testing the Hunt in Charleston Harbor. They turned it over to a Navy lieutenant named John Payne. By the way, afterwards was the head of the Baseball Association of Alabama. Uh, he took it out for trials, tried to train a crew and everything. And his first attempt, it suddenly sank at the dock. I mean, it was really just worth the dock and it went straight down. <laughs> uh, there were conflicting stories of what happened. Some claimed that the wake of a passing ship flooded the oven's open hatches, filling with enough water to sink it. Others claimed that the lines got tangled with the lines of another ship that was dragged out. 
Whatever happened, whatever the cause, the family sank and the Bible that's proven God. Because literally you can't get out of those wretches. Only basically guys close to the hatch has a chance to get out. Pain was standing on top of the ship. He jumped and swam to safety. It took weeks to retrieve the sunken submarine. And in the meantime, Horace Hungry arrives in Charleston and says, I can take charge of you. I was pretty good with it. And by the way, one of the things about it, it says the Hungry here, the title of the talk was CSS Hungry. There's a lot of legal debate as to whether it was actually a Confederate Navy ship or not, or whether it was just a private venture. It was staffed by Confederate Navy personnel. Well, Hungry takes it over and he schedules a demonstration of the boat in Charleston Harbor. So you dive over this, under this boat, come up on the other side. Well, he dived under the boat. He was never seen again. <laughs> a couple weeks later, they had divers, by the way, and uh, death elephants and rescue people on hunt. <laughs> and what they found was how he had dived the thing too steeply and he stuck the thing right in the mud trip of the bottom of Charleston Harbor. Uh, when the hatches were open, there was a gruesome sight as the members with the crew seemed to frozen in time. Tommy still clutching at candles and forward contact. Uh, basically, Hunley was not familiar enough with the ship. He couldn't release it, but he didn't know what the, what the right instructions to release it. They can get it come back to the surface. So the whole crew died. It was suspected that Hunley mismanaged the pumps and therefore lost his life. You'd think that after two disasters like this, nobody would want to go there again. Well, they found another volunteer, Lieutenant George Dixon. On the left is the only known photo of George Dixon. On the right is a reconstruction from his skeleton that they've done at the Charleston Museum. George Dixon is sort of a man of history. Uh, I've done some research on him trying to help out the friends of Arnold Atlas. What we do know is he was probably Northern, probably from Cincinnati, Ohio. That he was an engineer on a steamboat in Alabama before the war. He volunteers for the 21st Alabama Infantry at the Battle of Shiloh. A bullet hits him right in the hip, which is generally fatal in those days. But what happened was he had a $20 gold piece in his pocket there, given to him by his fiance. And the bullet hit the gold piece and bounced off. And so he was he lived for the rest of his life, but he was otherwise feeling hurt. Well, this disqualifies him for active infantry service. So he decides to, he's very adventurous, he knows machines and knows boats. So he volunteers for the Navy. He was probably well to do. When they unearthed the Hunley, he was dressed in silk shirts. I mean, uh, and his apartment in Mobile had a lot of pretty expensive stuff there. It is thought or suspected that he was had shares of a blockade runner was making profits off of running the blockade also, which a lot of them did, of course. This is the facial reconstructions of the crew. 
Now, how they do that, you may be familiar with, you know, with this process from some of the bad TV shows, but uh, basically they take the skulls of the victims, they have sort of a calculation of how much skin and flesh you have over particular points of your bones. They put that on and use the descriptions to try to do the hair color and everything. And this is, we don't have actually photos of any of the group. Was interesting. A lot of them were northerners or foreigners. Remember, in the Navy at that time, uh, both navies, uh, well, you're international, you're sailing from one country to the other. And so a lot of American sailors on the Union vessels were born in Germany or Holland or Sweden or someplace like that. Um, several of them were northerners. And they weren't short. These are actually pretty big guys for the time. I think the average about 5, 10, or 5, 11. The one thing that they saw from that was they all had sore backs. And that's from bending in that thing that turned the ground. So they all had back problems, back and shoulder problems. But uh, otherwise, they're pretty healthy people. They range from the age of 18 to 40. So that's a pretty good cross section uh, of the Confederate Now we get to the fatal night. The Hungley was stationed at Sullivan's Island uh, near Fort Moultrie, by the way. Uh, and uh, they were looking for an opportunity to send a ship. And the USS Lusitanic was a shallow drafted gunboat. That uh, because it's shallow drafted, the idea was as close to the mainland as possible. Because blockade runners quite often were shallower than the warships, and they come right down, you know, use the shallow waterway that the U.S. warships couldn't couldn't get into. Uh, warships had warships, of course, have a lot of heavy cannon, so they sink lower into the water. Blockade runners don't have that kind of weight, so they can go into shallower waters. They targeted the two satanic. And they went out and said, This is a four mile trip. And here's a picture of recreation of the moment of impact. By the way, all that idea about the, the torpedoes you know, being dug from inside by a lanyard or something like that. No. This was a pole with a contact mine. Uh, for the contact, contact fuse. And so once you ran against the ship, it was thrown up. It struck the bad portion of the Hussitanic below the waterline. And in those days, ships didn't have watertight compartments. So cold and pretty got a big hole below the waterline and it sink pretty quick. This is a diagram of the Hollywood impact. Again, you can see, you know, from the you know, there's passing around here. This is where the uh, mine will be. They get ropes to hold it up like that. Uh, when they weren't in the water, they could pull it out of the water to keep it dry. Um, we'll talk about other things about the ship. But um, this is 
So it kept it a secret. What they did was they put a little notes there. They said, hey, we discovered, they put it inside the common now and said, we discovered this in 1995, you know. So anybody would come in with being detected, they discovered it. There's the three discoverers right there. And after that, they uh, went to a restaurant in North Charleston for dinner. And there's me at the same table that they, eating the same hamburger that they ate. Lesson took this picture. Uh, good purpose, too, but. Uh, it took a couple of years, I'll leave the grass to raise on me. First of all, Cluster finally told everybody where it was. The state of South Carolina wanted to have it, the United States government wanted to have it because. This is a Confederate warship, and they claim ownership of all United States sunk warships. And three or four other people claim it. There's a lot of lawyers, unfortunately, got it. But eventually, they got enough financing done for a museum to put in and a plan to raise them. And here's a little film clip of the raising. This is an animation. Once the wreck was found, a tremendous operation involved in government assistance and the best technical engineering was set in motion. To raise the food. The protection of this nationally significant outside was given high priority by the state of South Carolina. The hunting weighs about 30 tons, so a specially built truss had to be constructed. Large piles were lowered to the bottom. Then the water and silt was pumped out, causing the piles to be sucked into the mud. The truss was then lowered, with each end supported by the pile. A series of support straps were looped below the back, then carefully inflated to evenly distribute the ship's load. The support, the hull was hoisted aboard the recovery barge. She was then transported to a specially constructed holding tank and will be transferred to the Charleston Museum where restoration is complete. Now they were very careful about not, not breaking the hull of the They transferred to a holding tank. One of the things about the water there is it's salt, salt corrodes. The metal weakens it, and literally they put uh, ten years soaking the salt out of the metal to restore it to you know about as strong as it was uh, back uh, when it was built. Uh, this the film clip. There are several videos of the film clip. There was like seven thousand fighting vessels, you know, sitting around there cheering when the and the hunger breaks the surface. Uh, now, here's the Hunley today. This is in the Charleston Museum here. Uh, evidently, uh, at the time we were on, it was still being uh, conserved. 
I understand the long-term idea is put in a glass enclosure with a argon gas inside, a neutral gas that won't react to the metal or anything will preserve. We have a splendid crew of events at the service. By the way, I don't know a lot the dogs are on the right end. Probably should. We'll talk about it. Quarters. That's a stitch showing how big that hatch is. Or how big the submarine there. There's you can do the hatch. Through the sides, and you can see I can just barely fit through the hatch. It wasn't, you couldn't get through very quickly. It was hand powered. On the left there, they have the submarine they used for the movie. By the way, in the movie, the, the thing is 20% bigger than the actual submarine. Uh, you guys are just you know, for filming purposes and that sort of thing. On the right, on your right, that's me with the actual. Look at how you have to give in close like it. The benches were angled down. That's because that gives you a better angle, better push on those cranks. This is a Dixon's gold watch, gold coin and watch. Uh, this is how we really do the business to Harlem because it had been known that Dixon had this $20 gold piece with an inscription on it, and they found it on him when he found his pockets. There's this watch again, this is a pretty expensive watch. So this guy is making some money somewhere. The, uh, The bodies were found basically in the position that you'd expect them when they were hatched. There was no, unlike the, when Hungry went down, you could see the bodies that were frantically clogged without the hatch yet. The bodies were found basically in the hatching stations. We talked about this. There was mud all over the inside of the thing, and they used a toothbrush basically to clean out like 30 tons of mud. And that's how long that takes. This is the keel wood, the lead keel wood. Basically, this is an emergency uh, way to get off the bottom of the, of the ocean. They had lead weights on the bottom of the ship with screws on that. And from the inside, you could unscrew the thing, the lead weight would fall down, the ship would be light, and the theory would go back right back up to the surface. Here's the interior of the ship. I mean, uh, you can see it's probably really, really dark. Uh, and heated and sweaty and 28,000 other things. Not a pleasant way to send a war. They made discoveries. And the discoveries basically were this something was a lot more sophisticated than I thought. First of all, they had a gear trained flywheel 
uh, you know, the engineers here, I understand that when you're doing this cranking, uh, you know, you're turning a wheel with, with a weighted wheel that gives you more consistent thinking of the propeller. We had a battery, an electric battery issue, and we did not know exactly why they had this battery. It wasn't for light, probably. What the guess is that they had a backup electric charge to detonate the mine if the contact thing didn't work. It was sleeping, it had countersunk ribbons. By countersunk ribbons, it means that rather than have a you know, like screw of nails or round tops on it, they're flush with the rest of the submarine, flush with the mid surface. The torpedo was on a spar. Again, a lot of people thought that this submarine had it on a rope that was trailing the, 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 the mine. They had to they died under the ship and then dragged the mine. We had that rope on No, this was a uh, spot. When they found the ship, it had stalactites inside. And what that means to, I guess, the experts is it, when it sunk, it was dry inside. Stalactites are little, you know, things you see in Nano Cave and that. Uh, when water drips down, it has little metallic things in it. The metallic things uh, plumbing, you know, like the arrow downwards. So the best guess is that this thing was not wet when it went down for the last time. And he had a sheared off rubber. You don't, don't know exactly why the rubber was knocked off as it was. They had eight men rather than nine. The crew was supposed to be nine, but they only had eight on this voyage. Only eight died. They had a snorkel. A snorkel would be the kind of thing for summary. Basically, they have a breathing tube that you can go up above, above the water and grab, grab air and breathe it down and in. They had a snorkel that the Germans basically used in World War II. pretty nice for the time. And the sea cots were broken. Now, sea cots are basically, they got a, a, a little door type thing where you can get the, if you want, if you want to drain the ship and open these things, and, if you got one inside, it breaks out. Uh, they were broken. This is the so-called torpedo. Now, again, what we call today a mine, they call that a torpedo. These are not self-propelled. And this is a drawing of the community what the torpedo seemed to look like. And we have to see the contact keys there. And this is the spar. And you can see the end of the spar there, the copper sheathing was blown backwards by the explosion. She kind of indicates that the, the top mine was right there. Of course, it's backwards. In the water there. On the left, there's me. Uh, Charleston Harbor in those days was relatively shallow, so it's basically something about 30 feet water. And so there's me, and you know, you see that line up there, and that's about where the water was. So it wasn't that far below. And there's a marine diver, me, and there's my wife as an RPA concert conservator there. Uh, a little fun there. But what happened to the summer? 
So these are the basic uh, uh, ideas advanced as to why the Harlem never came Now, the movie has a suicide death. Nothing in the story that believes that, but it's a good movie. Yeah, it's all, you know, we're just thinking the sequel is just not, you know. Did the explosion cause all this? Did the explosion distort the hull and cause leaks? Probably not, because the stalactites indicate that the inside of the thing was basically dry for at least 10 years after the war. Was there a battery acid leak? Remember that battery? Well, maybe some fumes from that battery just knocked them all out. Did it collide with a union ship? In the movie, Armand Asaki gets shot by a shotgun from the Housatonic, you know, goes right to the portal there. Did the concussion from the explosion kill the crew? And then talk a little bit more about that. Did they run out of air due to misjudgment? Broken sea cracks? Originally, they thought that somebody had been sunk, sunk, sunk into the hole of the Lusitania, but the Lusitania went out. You know, they thought it was going to be underneath the Lusitania. Turned out it wasn't. So, what happened? We may never know. The theory of uh, Duke University the professor came up with this theory a couple of years ago that the concussion. Of the explosion. Now, this explosion is like 30 feet away. It's only 25 pounds of black powder. Her calculation said that this is enough to stun the crew or dunk them unconscious. And so, without the crew being conscious of anything, it was sank. The US Navy tested this theory and said, no, it's not true. The explosion might give you a black and blue helmet or something like that, but it wouldn't knock the whole crew out. Because the explosion forces go up rather than up. But this is the concussion theory is a very popular one. Trapped by the tides. Remember, this thing only go three or four miles an hour. Charleston Harbor has strong ocean tides. And the idea was they tried to go back into the harbor. They just didn't have the energy after all that effort to get out there to stem the tide, which is blowing out at the time, coming out from the harbor to the sea at the time. It's also possible the crew misjudged their oxygen supply. Um, probably the theory I like most is that they decided to go the other side of the tide after they saw it, because that's the way the tide was going. And they would get on the bottom there and wait for a couple hours until the tide would start going back into shore. And then once the tide reversed, they'd get up and come back. But maybe they miscalculated their oxygen supply. They had, they had tested their oxygen supply. They'd gone down for two hours. With no extra reaction, just in that way. They might have wanted, they might have probably even wait two hours. The trouble was when they went down for a practice thing, they weren't sweating at the time. They hadn't, you know, they were they hadn't rolled for four miles. They hadn't had the excitement of battle. And when you have that, you're breathing a lot harder and a lot heavier, and you're consuming more oxygen. So this is probably the theory I I think I get the most is that. 
They just miscalculated. They went to the other side and decided to wait a couple hours and sneak back when the diet was going the other way. And they miscalculated their, their oxygen supply. Collision at sea, there were stories that uh, one ship, that was, some Union ships were coming to rescue the hungry, bumped into something. There's really no evidence that uh, substantial evidence of this happened. And there's no evidence from the Hunley that there was a fault that would have caused it to uh, sink. Lucky shot. Well, again, that's Armand assigning again, so I knew that uh, you know, should the portal and maybe work Armand's and I have to work this. And then would have put a hole in the, the portal. We had a little glass thing for something to look out on. They broke the glass and the thing Again, I don't think that's the case because it was dropped for years after the uh, sea. Damage to the sea cocks? Well, it was damage to the sea cocks. Yeah, but uh, again, the sea cocks yeah, would have let water in and the indication was that the water didn't immediately come. Did the snorkel leak? Oh, here's your snorkel. Just the snorkel box, by the way, before it had the conservation. Uh, pretty primitive stuff. Basically, to get the air into the thing, you get bellows, like you go for uh, you know, an old fashioned waxer shop or something. And you force the air from the surface down there. I'm not sure I want to, you know, depend on that for my life. Uh, but um, if it broke, then it could have been leaking. And the ship could have filled with waters because of that. In summation, we don't really know definitively why the Hummel was lost. I think some scenarios can be ruled out pretty clearly. Uh, but that still leaves two or three plausible scenarios that they don't simply don't have enough evidence to be able to determine one way or the other. Well, the Hunley crew, after they were uh, examined and everything, they were given a burial in the cemetery, the big cemetery had a big ceremony. They had the horses going through the streets with horse horses and everything. And, uh, this is a brief video of that ceremony. The sons of Confederate veterans were out in force. They crowded like 15,000 people there. That the song that they sang at the end of the Titanic, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can see this is <laughs> this is a lapse. Let's go that way. And where was there? <laughs> Sailors make that. 
it was it was done with all the robots muscular, I guess you'd say. Yeah, just how crazy they were to sacrifice for the very together by the way. Yeah. 
I'll say the World War One. There were other attacks by torpedoes, but they were generally surface ships. Again, everybody in the 1890s was trying to get the practical submarine because it was potential. John Holland was the first one to make it a reality. And Thomas Edison had a big part. He was the one who made the new and improved batteries to power those submarines. In fact, Edison, then go to the Edison Museum in Florida. He made more money on batteries than he did on the phonograph or the, you know, the movie theaters or anything like that. That was his big money maker, and that probably had more of an influence than uh, all the entertainment of the thousand other inventions that he made. So, uh, yeah, it, it took it took that kind of technology to make it a practical weapon. Yes. How about the Revolutionary War? Well, that was when I showed you. That was David Bushnell's yeah. submarine. Uh, they, he tried to, again, to get that screw to attach his bomb to the bottom of a British warship, and the screw didn't take because the bottom of the warship was sheathed with copper. They were sheathed with copper at the time, by the way, because it was all wood on the bottom. You get barnacles and worms, and the worms would eat the ship. And quite often, quite often, especially in the Mediterranean Caribbean, you'd be sailing along and suddenly bottom of your ship would fall out. Not a good thing. <laughs> so that's why they that's why they put copper on the bottom. First of all, to prevent that. Second of all, the barnacles slow down the ship, as you might understand. You know, better understand. So having the copper sheathing, the barnacles and you know the oyster shells and everything, they don't like the copper. So it was a good try. Uh, it was very difficult. One man trying to propel that turtle thing. They couldn't go very fast. Um, it was not a practical weapon of war, basically. Uh, it was proven. Even if, even if the bomb had worked properly, it was just too slow to do anything but a surprise attack against the ship. Yeah. 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 He got out of it, yeah. Uh, yeah, he didn't try it again, but you got he returned safely, that's something at least. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't really try any more submarines during the revolutionary war. Not a good idea. Yes. How far from shore was it now? the voyage was 4.3 miles to Lusitana. It was about 600 yards, I think, to the south and uh, east of the Lusitana. So, less than five miles. Uh, again, the surprise was no, everybody thought it was uh, would be on the Charleston side of the Lusitana. But they actually thought we'd come back. Oh, there's another thing, the blue light. Everybody know we get blue light back. That they would get a blue signal light. Well, no. The blue light was not a light. You know, the, 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 the thing that they, the, they were supposed to, somebody was supposed to signal with a blue light on the lamp on the, on the ship that they had been successful. They were supposed to signal the shore that they had done that. Blue light in those days was fireworks, not a lamp. And nobody remembers seeing fireworks that night. Again, if you show 
you set off fireworks in your submarine and sort of locates everybody where your submarine is and you'll say not so so the, again that's one of the myths and legends of the uh, how many is that do like that yes uh, is there any kind of estimate about how long it took them to uh, sail up from uh, the gap to the ship? I think we can make a pretty good estimate. Um, probably at least an hour. It's four miles an hour. And this thing is literally just... Because it's, it's, it's heavy, they made it as sleek as they could, but... A human being is an eight horse is a one quarter horsepower engine. So eight people cranking, that's a two horsepower engine. That's basically your your riding lawnmower. And that's what's powering this ship. So you can imagine it's not gonna go very fast and won't certainly won't go against the current of any size. So yeah, probably about an hour, a little more maybe. Yes. The immediate aftermath said that the Recognize the weather eventually. When did the South know that it was missing and would become immediately like, were they legendary immediately or was it something that comes over time? The question is when did the South and the North know about it? Within 24 hours. The North knew about it right away. Well, the Charleston Harbor was so shallow when the Pussetonic sank, some of the masts were still above water. And so the sailors just climbed up on the mast and then we got to. So they knew exactly where the thing was and what had happened. And when the Hanley didn't come back after 24 hours, they sort of knew that was never coming. Again, I don't think anybody was really surprised by that. How long did it take them to get As far as the loudness of the explosion, Water, I think, transmits sound more than air does. So it would have been a pretty loud explosion. But certainly the other blockading ships were the explosion. And uh, this 130 pounds of black powder. Now, black powder, again, is an explosive. It's not, it's not used today because it's really slow acting, quote unquote. It uh, takes a half, a quarter of a second to build up, you know, to the expansion of the things that cause damage. Uh, so that it was a more drawn out noise and explosion than what you than what you see with a modern explosive, uh, in case explosive, ammonal uh, or ammonium nitrate or something like that. Yes. Yeah, how could they see what they were doing? Well, you know, they had these little conning towers and they had little glass items, they call them uh, uh, cattails or something like that, where they would uh, be able to see through and get sunlight a little bit. They were on the surface so they could get some air and they could keep a candle to approach the Housatana. But the last 200 yards, obviously, they'd have to close the hatches and knock out the candles because. Uh, you don't want to light up the night when you're trying to attack a big warship by surprise. Yeah, the, the difficult, again, today they have electric lights and everything. Not invented until by Thomas Edison again, 1870. So, uh, so we have They tried, by the way. They thought about having chemical lights, they had phosphorus, 
and things like that that would, you know, it's a chemical glow, sort of like a, a lightning bulb does. Uh, but they couldn't, they didn't have the chemicals and they couldn't make it practical thing. Uh, so, yeah, they're basically, they're, they're got to take them dark, remember? And so it's, so it's really dark and it's, you know, the guy can sort of see, sort of see the outline of the ship they're going for. But it's, it's difficult. They tried several times, by the way, to sink the Susitana before, before the successful one. The Susitana is so much faster that if it moves, they can't catch it. It just had to be exactly the right time. Yes? The alligator was, this is the Union summary we talked about. The alligator is actually a little bigger than They showed two people there, but they actually had, that was just for demonstration purposes. They actually had no people. There's also allegations of this French guy who's in the music. Believe it or not, there was corruption in the beginning. So, hard to believe, I know, but uh, it was bigger. And bigger was not necessarily better because that's more weight you got to push with your quarter horsepower engine. Eight people, two horsepower engine, that's nothing. Uh, one more question, I, yeah. Well, this, uh, I, I just I missed mean, uh, what you were saying about what the plan is for the hungry once it's uh, decomposition was completed. Some kind of glass enclosure, you said? Uh, that's, that was the one I heard about with Argon, which is a word. Yes, it doesn't apply. Okay, and also then just the timeline. We discovered it in 95 and we brought it up a couple years later, 97. And my wife and I saw it when it was still in the back. That was 2004, early 2004. How long did it stay in that back? Do you know? I think we're over 10 years. Over 10 years. I so, think you know, what they're doing with the monitor in the Newport News, they're so, it takes 10 or more years to soak, desalinate the iron. Yeah. Because I got to do it just a little bit at a time. Yeah, my name is more than Where's the now? Then it was at the Naval Yard in a big, you know, big Bonza Town. Where's the location now? I think it's pretty much the same place you're talking about. Okay. It's a quad, it's an old quad, quad's apart from the Naval Yard mm -hmm. that the U.S. Navy gave uh, to Charles. The house. Read the book and you'll find out. It's in North Charleston. That's the only thing I can tell you offhand. Looks cool. Uh, the book by uh, Hicks, Sea of Darkness. Yes, that's, that's the best. That's the best book on the pump. I mean, it's not the Plus, I think it's the best book ever. Long. That's probably the best. Okay, I think we're sort of out of time. We're probably going to throw us off to minutes here. So. <laughs>